0: are we getting back to normal or a new normal or perhaps more accurately a brave new normal and we've been asking this question not just on adam versus the man but america the world we've all been like just Coronavirus? Shutdowns? Lockdowns? Social distancing? A government-induced forced unemployment crisis? Do we come out of this? Telecommuting? Protests? Racial division? More polarization than ever before? Is this the new normal? What new normal are we getting back to? Are we going to have movie theaters? Restaurants without bubbles over the tables? All of these questions, we've been asking for quite some time now, and I think I'm finally ready to weigh in on what I think this brave new normal looks like. For starters, we go to CNN.com. This is from April 17th, Ray Sanchez, America's new normal will be anything but ordinary. As the United States combats the coronavirus pandemic, the timeline for reopening the country in a bid to jumpstart the economy remains unclear. But dramatic changes to daily life are coming into view from mass temperature checks and mandatory use of face masks to empty sports and entertainment venues to Orwellian government monitoring of cell phone location and other personal information. Now, on the surface, there are a lot of obvious new normals that the mainstream media is happy to point out because they would kind of lose their credibility if they just ignored this reality of the new normal, this new phase of, of government tyranny, oppression, exploitation. I mean, what's this all about? Like, why, why is this happening? The biggest rackets in the world are always around government, right? Wars, central banks, overblown health crises so that they can add nine plus whatever trillion dollars of liquidity to the market. Money created out of thin air. And it's tempting to say, well, the more things change, the more things stay the same. So we go to... Finance.yahoo.com next. A bailout for defense contractors. Surprise, surprise! It's, the, it's these pricks again. The Pentagon has announced that it is providing financial assistance to defense contractors who have been hurt by the coronavirus pandemic, Defense One reports. Ugh. Yeah. The Defense Department said this week that it has paid $135 million to five mid-tier defense companies as part of an effort to sustain defense-critical workforce capabilities in body armor, aircraft manufacturing, and shipbuilding. The money reportedly will be used to retain skilled workers, and in some cases to rehire those who have been laid off due to the slowdown in business. And you go, oh, who is it? But has Congress buy the short and curlies all the time already? Anyway? Oh yeah, the military industrial complex. Do you think do you think Congress do you think the federal government, do you think Trump even could have gotten away with with the coronaphobia pandemic, with the economic with manipulation if if they weren't getting their peace without their permission, essentially? No. No, of course not. The more things change, the more things stay the same. Government is still a racket for the rich to get richer and the poor to get poorer. And thinking about this today, just pondering this idea, you know, the rich get richer, the poor get poor. If you look at the metrics of the fiat currency system, the runaway numbers, it, it, it it's tempting to go, oh, wow, we're getting, you know, screwed more than ever before. And they kind of want you to, to – to have that power that, that over you by uh, making you think that they're more like they don't mind if the conspiracy is government might be really way more scary and powerful and dangerous than you thought. Now you really better not say anything about it. You tinfoil hat wearing maniac, you know, stick to your bunker and keep your tinfoil hat on, right? Uh, don't forget the super male vitality pills and this. Mentality that allows this to happen, it it is in all of us. What they are doing is sucking wealth away from the working class, right? From the working class to everybody who would exploit us. Government is not the only, but certainly the biggest and the focal, central mechanism of the exploitation of the poor and working class by the rich, and it's not that all rich are good, and it's not that all poor are are bad. Wait, I mean it's not that all rich are bad; it's not that all poor are good, right? There are plenty of rich people. Uh, you know, very few in the, in the you know the the upper upper tiers don't at least have some complicity in the evil system. But there, you know there are plenty of wealthy people who have earned their wealth legitimately, more or less, even though they're you know, profiting from the, the general system of the fiat currency. Capitalism. They're doing well-intentioned and have more or less earned you know, what they have. And there are, you know, this isn't that, that all uh, poor people are good. You know, there are plenty of bad criminals, plenty of criminals and exploiters who just aren't successful, who are poor um, for, for whatever reason. And it's kind of a matter of what can they get us to believe. I'm reminded of the quote from Voltaire, those who can get you to believe absurdities can get you to commit atrocities. So we go to the mirror uh, next for powerful image of Archbishop and Cathedral surrounded by pictures of COVID-19 victims. And I, I I know this guy has not seen the headlines that I have seen. I, I, we brought you the story where they it was, it was really clear in Washington State where the coroner had a guy who had been shot, died of gunshot wounds, but because he tested positive for corona, his death was listed as a coronavirus death. These are not people who are dying from corona. They're people who are dying with corona. Corona. There is a huge distinction, and the, the, the twist of that one word is is such. A, uh, represents a lie of such massive implications that instead of the truth, we are, we are being led to believe that that the, this is something we should. I mean, the mainstream is falling for this. A lot of people are falling for this. The majority of people, you know, at, at least they fall for it at first. Before oh crap, and then they put it together, and it, you know, people like us, people like me, people who watch. Adam versus the man, independent media, and read between the lines in the the, the mainstream. You know, understand, we we go through this correction a little faster. The mainstream falls for the manipulation. Maybe they correct it later. It's a matter of time. And there's a lot of it happening much slower than we want it to happen. You know, and I feel sorry for this Archbishop of Lima, Carlos Castilla, As this cathedral filled with 5,000 images of those who have died as Peru continues to be ravaged by COVID-19, with the cleric also taking aim at the government in a live broadcast. And it's it's interesting, the story says photos of those who have died during the pandemic, not necessarily from the virus, uh, but then in the next paragraph it says faces of 5,000 people killed by the virus during Sunday mass. And it's like, uh, uh, uh. please stop trusting the authorities, the people you know have lied historically over and over and over again. Now, what have they lied about? What have the records of, of, of history taught us? About the racket of exploitation, that effort to suck wealth away from the poor and working class through these massive institutional social rackets, government or around government, you know, corporate rackets that are empowered by government, central banks empowered by governments, governments themselves, the military-industrial complexes of the world. Well, something's about war! What what are they lying to into? War! Well, you know what? I guess I love referencing Professor Steven Pinker of Harvard, Better Angels of Our Nature, his book, The Surprising Decline in Violence, a TED Talk of his, I highly recommend, showing that violence is on the decline in human history. uh, Undeniably, academically proven, this is the course of human history. The racket of government, of war itself, is getting less vicious over time. So they're turning to different rackets now. But to the headlines, let's look first to uh, NBCnews.com. We'll go around the world for what's hot in today's conflicts. And, you know, we don't have to look just at today's news. Just think back over the last decade or so. Global conflict has been reduced in scale since the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. And I don't mean to ignore The Yemeni conflict or any of the other massive causes of death by armed conflict throughout the world today. But the scale of what government is able to get away with in the age of the Internet, look at how long they've been trying to get a war going with Iran. Trump gets to kill one of their generals. Certainly an international war crime. Did it escalate? Not really. In the past. Without the check or checks and balances of the information age that we live in today, those conflicts very may well have escalated to levels that we haven't seen since uh, the last generation of international armed conflict. There's a scaling down. So to NBC News, we see... The headline, North Korea bombed inter-Korean liaison office near border amid growing tensions. Uh, CJ, that video doesn't have any audio. If you would pull that up full screen, I'll read a little bit of this. North Korea admitted Tuesday to bombing an inter-Korean liaison office building just north of the border with South Korea as tensions escalate on the Korean Peninsula. South Korea's unification ministry which handles relations with North Korea, confirmed to NBC News that the liaison office in the North Korean border town of Kaesong was demolished by bombing on Tuesday afternoon local time. And this is, you know, I'll leave my words if this turns into a bigger war, but I highly doubt it. Let's go to Sun.com next. Trouble brewing: Chinese soldiers kill Indian troops in fighting along disputed border, raising fears of war between two nuclear powers. What are we talking about? Three. It's funny because I'm to kind of, like turn around. You know, the death the death of one uh, is, is a tragedy, to the death of a million is a statistic. Well, this is the death of three. Let's put that in statistical perspective, compared to. World War One, World War II, all the wars before and the cumulative effect on the death rate you know, being higher, the further you go back in history, the, high, the more likely you were to die at the hands of another human being. We are now living at the most peaceful time in human history. Go, team people. You are less likely today to experience violence at the hands of another human being than ever before. You don't hear the mainstream media trying to get your attention with that kind of good news, right? Go team people, look at this. Look at how far we've come. You'll never hear them describe that as the new normal. Now, to the Wall Street Journal, one more international news story today caught my eye that might might suggest there's a new normal in international affairs. There's a reason America's military-industrial complex, which, remember, Eisenhower originally wanted to refer to as the military-industrial-congressional complex. There may be a... a, Why are they turning to the coronavirus as their excuse for bailouts? I mean, hey, you can pay us to make weapons. And by the way, there's, there's like this... Like three step progress here, right? You can pay us to make weapons to use in war. You can pay us to make weapons that you won't really use in war. That, that's really where we're at. Like, compared to the scope of, of World War II, like they were, they were making weapons and using them up. Bombs, they were going through them like crazy, right? Since then, it's like more Cold War status. The majority of military spending on weaponry goes to weapons that are made and decommissioned, not used in war. Not used in the global war on terror. There's way more. Like, you, you look at how much money is spent through the military industrial complex. It, it's to maintain this ridiculous arsenal. Most of it's not actually being used ever in combat. out the part that is used in combat Iraq, Afghanistan, everything else, it's absolutely horrific. Syria, Yemen, everywhere that America's spreading. Hate and destruction, uh, but there's there's a shift that I think this next story uh, at least points to very well. From the Wall Street Journal, of Japan halts introduction of U.S. missile defense system. Tokyo cites costs, technical issues with Lockheed Martin's Aegis ashore batteries. Japan suspended plans to introduce a multi-billion dollar American missile defense system, citing major new costs and delays from modifications needed to ensure rocket debris from the system doesn't endanger local residents. (laughs) Now, when, read between the lines, when did that ever stop the government from spending money on a weapon system? (laughs) No, there's, there's there's a bigger story here. And this was Japan agreed to buy the system made by Lockheed Martin Corporation in 2017 for an initial price tag of 2.1 billion dollars. As concerns rose about the threat from North Korean missiles, and President Trump called for allies such as Japan to buy more American defense hardware. See how this kind of fits together. <laughs> Uh, So what this is pointing to is a kind of decline in global hegemony of the U.S. dollar empire, the military-industrial complex empire. All these layers of of, of the swamp, if you will, that uh, Trump has only managed to feed, not drain. Now to Thompson Reuters from uh, news.trust.org. A little more international news to take us back to. What is the new normal? What is the new scare? Because there are more coming. And I have to think that the people behind this, and I don't think there's a singular global conspiracy behind the coronavirus pandemic. You know, there is too much disparity between countries in how they're dealing with this. If there really was a global conspiracy we'd have, a bit more uniform of a response. But for the people generally behind this, I think a lot of them right now are going, what? They fell for it? Did you see the guy with the noodles, the pool noodles on his head at the Walmart? Oh, my gosh. There's a woman with a sponge on her face. Look at this. We've got people putting bubbles on their heads. Oh, my gosh. Oh, look at what we were able to manipulate them. into. Oh, and they're not even talking about the $9 trillion. There's, And now we've got them totally distracted with race riots. Oh, my gosh. This is hilarious. Oh, look at what we've done. Oh, my God. Oh, this is going to be fun. This is better than the war racket. We don't have to do war. Can we just – this is fun. I mean, the wars were so ugly. And, and yeah, they made us a lot of money. But, like, this is so much fun. We can still kill people off, right? I mean, Bill Gates, he's still got this vaccine. Like, he's still working on that, right? Okay, the vaccine's coming. We're going to be able to kill a lot more. Okay, yeah, that's fine. But, like, oh, yeah, this is hilarious. Oh, it's so, oh, yes, oh, this is so much better. And, you know, really, it's safer for us. You know, we don't have to have the wars. You know, okay, so is this progress? I think so. Because, really, Maybe if, if I put myself in their shoes in that voice again, it could be like, ah, oh, sucks. We don't get to make the wars happen anymore. Well, at least we get to do this, and it's still pretty entertaining. We still get to rip everybody off. So, to the next headline: As coronavirus returns, Beijingers face disruption, anxiety. Beijing scrambled to contain a coronavirus outbreak just over a week after containment measures. Had been eased and life had returned to near normal, it was disrupting activity for many residents and feeling concerns of further tightening. Now, just for the historical perspective of the last few months on the story, remember China, it, it, the numbers manipulation is this obvious? I mean, they 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 released the chart where it had like the spike for one day. Oh, we counted them different. That day, we decided to include the asymptomatic cases. The are things we just ignored it, and then we went back to not even counting them. And then they report zero n- new cases, and now they're trying to spin it as, "Well, this is this is a different virus. It's mutated, so it's come comfort- from this is the American virus now, not the Wuhan virus." I guess that, is that my Chinese version of a Trump voice? I wish I could. D- that's what I, I really need an impersonator to be able to do, China, Trump's Chinese cousin, right? <laughs> but so what is this? If you're in China, the government tells you this. It, it's kind of hard to to question this. I mean, the, the information system there is, is really locked down in a way that uh, in the rest of the world, I mean, if you don't live in, and I don't think there's anything, quite like the great firewall of China in the world today, if you don't live behind it it's really hard to imagine what it's like to have that information suppression as part of your reality it, the, the Chinese government wouldn't be doing what they're doing in terms of manipulating and controlling the information if it didn't fundamentally work No, is, is it the best thing for their country? No humanity? No. For the future? No. Are the Chinese people going to be able to overcome it? Oh yes Oh, yes, absolutely. I have a feeling that if we don't do something really drastic in America to be the ones leading the world forward in freedom again, China's going to leapfrog us. It's kind of like a rubber band effect. Two steps forward, one step backward. Well, they're at the end of a major step backwards. You know, in a, in a way, the whole world is around modern bureaucratic governments. Yeah, currencies. They could, you know, they could have another great leap forward. And end up being more free. They could overthrow the the whole communist party, the whole system. Have uh, a Chinese Renaissance uh, where where China comes. I mean, they're they're poised. They have the, the 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 people power. If they really wanted to, to come to dominate the global economy, they they very well could. All, all they have to do is you know this this is one little thing to overthrow the Chinese communist government that is pulling this crap. Measures have been strictest in the southwestern district of Fengtai, home to the sprawlings in Fadi Wholesale Market, thought to be the origin of the latest outbreak that emerged late last week, which has infected 106 people. And, you know, right away you go... 106. I I, kind of think of, like, Kyle Kinane's bit where he's doing the tour of London for Jack the Ripper, and at the end of it, the guy giving his scariest British voice, or perhaps just his regular British voice, says, it may be believed that Jack the Ripper altogether
1: killed up to five
0: people. And Kyle goes, I know this is a strange time to well up with national pride, but we got people killing five people Right now, baby. And we don't put out walking tours for all of them, neither. I've been rolling my ankles on cobblestones for hours, for five people. And it's like, yeah, this really, it just shows how, and I, I don't mean to belittle the tragedy, but just that this works. Shows how little scale most people around the world have. To even conceptualize tragedy, that's not hard. This is why the government has to control education. This is why they they taught civics. If they just taught civics, like, hey guys, this is how the government works. Uh, These are your rights, and uh, at least on paper. And this is how you vote. And if you want to run for office, this is how it works. Because if they did, they'd have to start talking about issues, and they start talking about real political issues. Meaningful social issues of change of justice of human progress. Well, then they'd have to start talking about these statistics. They'd have to start prioritizing uh, pl- problems. Uh, would it would at least have to be put in scale in perspective. They don't do that, so that the Chinese communist government can go. Well, we have a new outbreak of 106 cases, and therefore we're going to lock things down. Some gyms have closed, and swimming pools across the city have only, which only reopened earlier this month, have been told to shut again. The same applies to places of worship. Uh, Said Zhu Li, 44, who has been struggling to keep her Buddhist-themed product store afloat during the outbreak. It only opened for three days, and indeed there were some people. I had been happy for three days, then it shut down. Yeah, and, and I, I mean I, I could keep going on the story, but you know how the rest of it goes. It's the same thing as here in America. You know, it's it's worse in China, obviously, as you would expect with something like this. Forced temperature checks, mandatory social distancing, mask enforcement, and that's all really just kind of a smokescreen. So that you don't see how much more power they have to exploit and manipulate. Even in some of the stories we've covered of state and local government health officials putting themselves in a position to be uh, the, the ultimate conduits of bribery. Oh, oh, you you want your business to stay open? You, you want me to put it on the list of allowed? I'll put it up. You will, if, if you're nice. I'll put you on the list of exempt. Of essential. Be if you give me money, I think you're essential. Now, the title of this podcast and segment is "Brave New Normal," combining "Brave New World." From Huxley's novel, and the question on everybody's mind today, is this the new normal? So from enotes.com, Huxley takes the title Brave New World from Shakespeare's The Tempest. The title is out because John the Savage knows Shakespeare by heart and quotes him often. When John says, oh, brave new world that has such people in it to describe the world's state, he is being ironic. He is not impressed with the shallow, superficial lives people live. He finds it tragic that the humans in this futuristic society know nothing of sacrifice, suffering, real religion, literature, or the arts. He considers it a great loss. that They have traded deep relationships for security. Amanda, however, argues that the comforts and well-adjusted lives people have in the world state are a fair trade-off for giving up passion art and freedom. Huxley's being ironic when he titles his book Brave New World. He writes about this dystopia to warn people against allowing this kind of drugged, shallow, and dehumanizing world to develop. But we're not, are we? Are there no silver linings? Is the world experiencing nothing more than a descent into madness? Say it ain't so. I refuse to believe it. There are so many silver linings to what we're experiencing right now. But the big one that I would want to point out is the general content continuance of the trend of the viciousness of the general racket focused around the state de-escalating. You know, we could talk about the silver linings like we see from Forbes. The new normal isn't remote work, it's better. Desperate for stability, our society keeps talking about. The new normal. Our personal and professional lives will be permanently altered by the coronavirus pandemic, and understandably, work from home policies are a cornerstone of that conversation. Remote work was a critical enabler of business and economic continuity during the original shelter in place regulations and may continue to be for future emergencies, especially now that it's proven to be possible. So now our news feeds are inundated with reports and projections about where knowledge workers. They were able to work remotely during lockdowns will be commuting to in the future, the cubicle or the kitchen table. So, you know, the article goes on, and there's a lot more this about virtual workplace accessibility, results-based tracking. And it concludes the new normal isn't necessarily a business world without working in an office. It's just a world where we focus on work instead of the office. As our teams adopt new ways of working via virtual workplaces, Asynchronous communication and results-based tracking will be able to focus much less on where we're working and instead celebrate the immense contributions that we're making to our companies and industries. And this is this is almost like the shallow economic version of the point I want to bring this story in to make here, that, the well, I mean, there's so many bigger points around this, but we're not commuting as much. A major shift in just the efficiency of humanity as a whole. You know, geez, I gotta quote Kyle Kinane again. This weird backwards race to see who's gonna get to their crappier jobs sooner, right? Like that, this, really? This is this is progress. This is and and you know, the idea of remoting or taking a, a big part of your life virtual isn't to suggest that that's what we should make our exclusive existence about, but that then the time that we get to be physically present is more meaningful and more valuable when we get to spend it with people we love doing things that are important. Now, aside from the sort of all the economic shifts that are positives that come out of this, that make us, even as the poor and working class of the world, better able in our quality of lives to be able to, to live well despite things being sucked away from us, All of the police reforms happening right now, uh, these are amazing positive things that reduce the viciousness of the state. So, I turn now to Frederick Douglass for a quote, for a little perspective on this. The limits of tyrants are prescribed by the endurance of those whom they oppose. Now, I've misquoted this several times, (laughs) (laughs) And I think my misquote is a better version of this because this certainly describes perhaps an immediate situation uh, of a slave, right? That a slave beaten and abused to the end of their endurance will by collapse or revolt and rebellion hit the limit of the tyranny of the slave owner. Yeah, I like that there. But there's a problem with it now where it doesn't quite fit because our endurance, our ability to have value sucked out of us and to continue to thrive is increasing. With just this exponential curve of human progress of the value of an hour of human labor creating more goods and services and quality of life than, than ever before. So I'd like to think it's not the endurance but the gullibility. Something else. The limits of tyrants are prescribed by the gullibility of those whom They oppose because their greed is also, while limitless at some point, burdensome. You can't be too rich. So what's the bigger awareness here? It's that we don't have to be a part of this anymore. Decentralization, Bitcoin, currency, well, cryptocurrency, blockchain technology. But at a political level, one of the things that I have done with our property here, the Garden of Freedom in Juniper Wood, Arizona, is start to assert our sovereignty. At first, just by lifestyle choice, by saying, I'm going to live off-grid. I'm going to separate myself. I'm going to disassociate peacefully from the violent relationships in my life and replace them with peace and voluntary cooperative relationships. And that's what I have. And I've been so much happier as a result of this. So now perhaps you see why I'm so excited about the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone in Seattle. While there's so much to disagree with there, and while much of that can be blamed on infiltrators and saboteurs, there is still so much to be powerfully agreed with and to be celebrated in what they are doing in simply declaring their independence. To say these are violent relationships that we have had with the Seattle Police Department. With the government of the city of Seattle, the state of Washington, and the United States federal government, and for now, in protest, if nothing else, we are opting out to create the Capitol Hill autonomous zone. And according to thegatewaypundit.com, it's spreading. Antifa, Black Lives Matter protesters set up illegal autonomous zone on plaza at Tennessee State Capitol. They took over the plaza in front of the Capitol building in Nashville, Tennessee, on Sunday. The group proclaimed it an autonomous zone like the Chaz compound. It's a compound now in Seattle. About 50 protesters are camping out in the plaza in front of the Capitol building. The group renamed the plaza Ida B. Wells Plaza. So is this, this seems even less tenable. I'm, I'm, in a sense, I'm not encouraged by the trend, the CHAZ occupying six city blocks, and there are plenty of issues with this. Are they taking over private property? Are they just reclaiming public government property? Is this righteous? Is it not? We're going to continue to explore those matters and get deeper into that today. But I am... GREATLY encouraged, even with the degradation of the quality, perhaps from Seattle to Nashville. And again, like I said before, what is this? Is this going to be sustainable as an autonomous zone any more than any of the Occupy protest encampments were? Probably not. But it gets people thinking. It sets the stage, and it makes me think of the greater issue here of rebellion and secession. And of course, you know, the Benjamin Franklin quote, if we don't hang separately, surely we will all hang together. But there's another little-known quote from Thomas Jefferson praising rebellion, saying that, it is essential, even if it is done wrong more often than right, that it must be celebrated to keep the spirit of resistance to tyranny alive. And clearly that's happening too. And I figured out several months ago that the worst they can do with this virus pandemic is bully us into a kind of bubble suit world, a hazmat suit world where you can't go out in public. Of course, that might mean, hey, there's a shift to private property, right? Restaurants being conducted at home without a license. More Airbnbs flourishing compared to hotels that are shut down. More communities simply declaring their independence, their sovereignty, their autonomy. Nothing could be more American than that. The new normal is a little weird. Things are fuzzy in a lot of ways. But if the new normal is this phase that we can go through, this brave new normal of viral threats, of manipulated protests, manufactured crises, but at the same time, a steadily growing undercurrent of rebellion and of the American practice of secession. Sounds like the new normal could just be a transitionary phase to America being more American than it's ever been. And the new world that we are building is one of which these ideals that America was founded on, of, of secession, of declaring your independence, of just proclaiming to the world, don't want to be a part of your forced collective anymore. Well, that's a new world that I think we can all look forward to, despite whatever new normal we have to endure in order to get there. And today is June 16th, 2020. Thank you so much for joining us on Adam vs. the Man. Now, that was an example of a long, cold opener. But, man, I'm so glad I was able to get that out today. Joining us remotely from Phoenix, instead of in-studio, we have comment Jim Freedom. Pull him up, CJ. Hey. Mr. Freedom, how are you doing this morning?
1: I'm doing well. Sorry I couldn't be physically with you today. But that's one of the beautiful things about this virtual studio of freedom. No matter what's really going on, I can go up while we can still. The show must go on, you know. We got two Super Chats waiting. I got to let you know. Oh, no way. Yeah, we got to get to those right away. They've been waiting. So CJ can put those on the screen.
0: All right. Thanks. I was wondering about that. People, People liking that opener, at least interacting. I love it. Insight of the Ages, for $2, stage is set for them to kill with immunity. Hmm. There's definitely an element of that, you know, and maybe I should have included that in my opener, that a part of the new normal is that police state representation with the public. But even then, I said, you know, there's these police reforms. I, I think that outweighs them. To kill with immunity? Yeah, maybe, but in, in the worst-case scenarios attached to the current even worse dynamics of society, that if they get to that kill with immunity status in some way, it's going to be very limited, and it's never going to match the scale of wars historically.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah, you answered that well. I was going to say they kind of already do kill with immunity, but I'm, yeah, I that's know what a, they're talking yeah. about on next scale.
0: You know? Yeah, yeah. So the overall trend of can they kill with immunity comes down with that overall trend in the decline of human violence. There is a spike right now of, of, of a blip uh, in, in the American and in, in the global police state around both big crises, the coronavirus and uh, the protests and riots and Black Lives Matter and everything else.
1: Um, but
0: yeah, it's a blip. It's 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 not a, a shift of the trend. All right, you want to read this next one?
1: Yeah, inside of the ages for five dollars follows up. I often wonder why the Chinese wear masks as a culture. Feels like our government is using a plan already, tr- already tried over there with success.
0: That's a very interesting point. You know, I had considered that in. Uh, You know, in in trying to understand what's going on right now, and I I never really, if someone wants to share, if they have a comment with a little more insight on this, you know, the the Chinese thing about wearing masks, you know, you see that even among tourists here, and I I don't, honestly, I don't understand it enough. I wish I I maybe had read a little background on on the phenomena before today. But is it is it like a conscious thing like I, I is, it, is it like when a Chinese tourist or Asian tourist comes to the United States they they wear a mask if they're sick and they they want to not spread it and they're just extra polite? You know if that's the case, that's a positive thing and I, if anything, I wouldn't mind if if that was one of the things I, my own legitimate germophobia supports this. Like right. that if you're sick, if you know you're sick, if you know you have a cold or a flu and you have to be around other people it uh, yeah it's kind of polite to wear a mask or a bandana I mean, is that crazy Jim?
1: no, it's not crazy it's just I think there's a stigma created because of the way it all went down now people are resisting wearing the mask because they feel right. like they were cold to.
0: right right and, and if the overall awareness is oh a culture of
1: like Like you're saying, wear it when you're
0: sick. Yeah. Are they? But the 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 heart of the question is more more than about the masks. Because it's even in China, it's both phenomena. It's there's there's a bigger culture. I mean, we've seen. And I don't know. Maybe maybe this is my own false image, right? I got to question myself on this. I'm going. How do I know this? I'm questioning myself, right? How do I know that wearing masks in Chinese culture is a thing? Because I see it in tourists and pictures and some news reports. Like I, I don't really know. Do they do it more than other cultures? Like, I, I'm confident in that, I guess, but the reasoning and how it relates to this, does it mean that they're
1: trying something? All right, We've got another follow-up comment, Jim. Yeah, looking, it's the same inside of the ages. Uh, looking at all the faces of the dead with COVID, if vast deaths disappear, That's yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. If vast deaths disappear, it's could all be COVID or whites that get no attention when killed by cops. Masked individuals versus unmasked. Facial recognition who sticks out.
0: Now that's I mean there's there's so many other wrinkles to this to consider. Like do they want people to be masked? Like does that do they do they want like is that you know, maybe it's like, oh man, you know, no, here's, okay, so here's how the, if, if, you know, I put myself in a super classes or the elites position on this, you know, when they think about masks, there, there has been like a growing accountability for everybody across the board in the information era and the fact that everybody has an accountability device in their pocket with a camera and a microphone connected to the internet called a cell phone, right? That, well, hey, we don't have enough crime in the streets to justify the government security racket. Let's have some pro- protests and riots, Why? And, 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 and we'll test out if we can make wearing masks the thing, because if we can make wearing masks the thing, we can make being anonymous in public more acceptable. Like, now, if someone walks around wearing a mask, like, and I'm not for laws that make mask-wearing, you know, uh, illegal you should be able to conceal your identity. Government should not prevent you from concealing your identity in public. But generally speaking, people are right to be, uh, you know, suspicious or not suspicious, but at least attentive. You know, and I think if, if in a private situation, if I ran a business, if I ran a store, a, re, a retail operation, um, it's it's like here's the, ah, here's the example. Um, Convenience stores, no hats, no glasses, no hoodies. They want you identifiable on the security camera. Right. Right. Now they can't say, and, and they would have, if, they, if it was reasonable, if they had to, they would say no bandanas or face coverings. And some of those signs I've seen do. I think yeah. they say something like that. So now stores can't say no face masks.
1: Right. Yeah. Ooh. Wow.
0: Does that just make everything way more tense? Yeah, does that, just, that. Is that just, in, does that change the incentive for you know you know a, a, a large swath of would be criminals in society who go well if I can do that now anyway Jim we how how are things going in the comment section in general this morning we we didn't ha- we talked a lot about our uh, backstage passes and the producers club on the show yesterday you want to give a quick Patreon plug I didn't. There was you know, it's funny, the Patreon club chat too, or the producers Club telegram chat was really active yesterday. People getting to know each other. It was cool to see that. Um, yeah, people talking yeah. about their different experiences across the country. Then this morning I'm prepping for the show. Nothing. And I did I did get a few news stories that we're gonna get into today that came from that,
1: but Jim? Give it seems like, like with the Telegram chat, when we uh, when another person joins, then everybody's like, "Hey, welcome!" and then a new conversation starts somehow, and it stays active for a while, you know. But then I think people at some point are thinking, you know, they don't want to overcrowd it. They don't want you to get sick of the Telegram properly and say, "Oh, this is too much," and you know, whatever. I don't know. But I was yeah, going to well, bring up in our private well, I, about, chat about, about but, that.
0: I, I I, yeah, I really encourage people who are in the producers club to keep that focus, that, that conversation focused on content and making connections and if, if you want to have a, you know side conversation can I just be like, hey you can you know, everybody can see each other's information in there that's just how Telegram works you can and and if by the way Jim you know this as our me, as our co-host comment Jim Freedom Patreon manager. Um, that if someone wants to join the Telegram group anonymously or through a Telegram account name, they can. But otherwise, it's like you have people's phone numbers in there, my phone number's in there. And you can see, even if they join with a screen name, you can you can message people directly. It's a great way to connect with people. And I, and I want it to be used for that. And people sharing news stories and their thoughts on those news stories, you know, it's helpful for me. I know, and I was like, ah, crap, he's he's on 9 a.m.? Well, specific Pacific time, I know we have some East Coast people who can tune in. But, you know, 24-7, you know, put your thoughts in there. I, I really consider that like our uh, our editorial team. And, hey, man, that was awesome to start with a long, cold opener and come into, like, two Super Chats waiting for me. That was beautiful. So, as, as everybody knows, if you're watching this live on, on whatever platform, uh, YouTube really is the best for watching. Well, really, the best is StreamYard. How How would someone join us backstage on StreamYard?
1: Uh, If somebody wants to join us, they can email um, producer at thefreedomline.com. If they're joining into the Patreon, as we've discussed many times, then they automatically get access to the Telegram chat. And the Telegram chat every morning gets a link to the StreamYard, which is the backstage studio that we record from. So you'd be able to watch all the comments from all the people on all the other platforms and have your own private chat going on here in the background. Like Corrine Bowman says, Pittsburgh needs to wear masks just because of the pollution, to be honest. (laughs) That's a private chat, though. Nobody else sees that chat except for the people that are backstage here in the studio, me and CJ and you obviously. So it's really fun. We have a great time back here.
0: All right,
2: CJ, any producer notes this morning? Yeah, um, I uh, just wanted to say that if we're all picking our masks, I've got mine. I'm ready to go. Uh, the government can't uh, tell who I am, and uh, that, uh, that'll help me out. You know, it's uh, one of those things where if uh, this is a new normal and it's a brave new world, I just figured I would participate. And, uh yeah, no, I highly recommend these. They're Rorschach masks. You can get them for, like, 20 bucks. As you can see, it changes the breath and makes it so that nobody can tell who you are, really. So, uh yeah, I, I welcome this brave, new, normal world we live in. So, uh, other than that, again, as uh, they've already said, you can reach me, uh, at producer at thefreedomline.com. Go to thefreedomline.com. Click on any of these wonderful links, specifically the book for freedom, and download it in every digital format. And uh, it's just a great read. Uh, It's also great to fall asleep to. You'll wake up saying things that you didn't even realize you're saying until after (laughs) you said them. But other than that, sir, uh, I I welcome the brave new world and uh, look forward to it.
0: All right. So getting to our next headlines from Arizona Daily Independent. Restaurant owner challenges citation issued during COVID-19 dining restrictions. And I love this uh, for a lot of reasons, but especially that my friend Mark Victor of Attorneys for Freedom uh, sent me this link as he's on the case. The owner of Euro Pizza Cafe cited in April for allegedly disobeying Governor Doug Ducey's COVID-19 executive order that closed restaurant dining areas will be in court later this month to learn whether a judge plans to dismiss the charge. Marita Idrizaj Kraja, I hope that's how you say that, I doubt it, has pleaded not guilty to violating Arizona Revised Statute 26-317, also known as the State's Emergency Management Law. The charge is a Class 1 misdemeanor, which could result in a sentence of up to six months in jail and or a $2,500 fine. Public records, so the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office had no evidence that Caraja allowed customers inside her Fountain Hills restaurant prior to the April 7th citation. Instead, deputies alleged patrons were allowed to drink, eat, and congregate at tables and chairs outside the building in areas that for customers waiting on to-go orders. I, I, this, now, this is, I, I love that they're standing up to this. However, on June 10, the Attorneys for Freedom law firm, that's Mark Victor, filed a motion on Karaj's behalf seeking dismissal of the case, arguing that the statute itself states the criminal provision does not apply to any private organization or member thereof for refusal to participate in a declared emergency. And it's funny, how, like they, they couldn't pass this law originally. To say, yeah, you just kind of have to go along. They had to, in order to pass the emergency powers law in the first place, they had to make this exemption. And as Howard Attorney Dorman contends, quote, on its face, the term private organization commonly refers to any non-government, privately owned organization or business. This language is clear and unambiguous, and therefore the court need only apply this plain meaning, therefore as stated as clearly in the statute itself, ARS. 26-317 26-317 is not applied to projects privately owned business. Now, if you think about what they're doing here, they're asking them to enforce the government's shutdown orders in an area that they don't actually have complete control over outside of their business and where they're allowed to use the business anyway. And this is, you know, one of the sort of unenforceable things where you think about it, they're trying to do this to the customers. And, like, I, I experienced this myself. We went to Phoenix and tried to eat outside at an in and out And we were allowed to wait. They, they came to the door. so freaking goofy. They came to the door. A, a, a wonderful young woman, as, as so many of the In-N-Out staff are, came to the door, took our order, Took our cash, came back with the food, uh, and then we sat there and started eating on the porch or on the, on, the, on the patio area where they had signs on the table so you're not allowed to hear. Jim was with me with that one, and uh, and Joe and Ant, and uh, who else? Um, was it that was with us? Anyway. We, uh, we, took a, we took a fun picture for Instagram. Like, yeah, we're not, no, we're, not, we're not going along with this. And they came out and asked us to leave. And I was like, well, if the restaurant asks us to leave, we're going to leave. But it, it's like you're allowed to be there, but you're not allowed to eat there. It's, it's kind of like, well, you're allowed to be there, but you're not allowed to dance there. Like, I can't move. Like, I can't put something in my What if I have, you know, what if I have, uh, what if I walk in with a mint in my mouth? Is that illegal? You know, what if what if I uh, what if I have some food in my teeth and it comes loose? Do I still turn into a gremlin after midnight if it happens then? Like at what point does it does this become and, and again, the enforcement, I'm just so glad that they're pushing back on this. It looks like uh, they they're gonna they're not gonna get away with this. That in today's society you can push back in a lot of these cases and I think we're gonna see more of these. Um, You know, I want to skip the next two stories, CJ, just because I want to make sure we finally get to our happiness segment today. So, from Jeff Dice at the Mises Institute, Seattle's Chaz Homesteaders or Illegal Squatters? And this is a really cool article. I love how Jeff analyzes this. And I've, I've never been so excited to get these ideas from someone who's, who's fundamentally disagreeing with me on the issue. And it's because we are so close. Like, if there's a dividing line on this issue, like, he's barely on one side and I'm barely on the other side. And there are are, are people, like, you know, on so much further apart on both sides of this. Whereas I see this as still a fundamentally beautiful thing in line with Jefferson's quote that, the value of keeping the spirit of resistance is alive that uh, it, or alive is, is so high that you have to celebrate it and make sure that it doesn't die so that even if it's done wrong more often than right, and he's saying, you know, sort of like I, I'd rather attend the uh, problems of, of too much freedom than too little. So to Jeff and his analysis here. Protesters in Seattle have taken over whole city blocks in a neighborhood known as Capitol Hill, just a bit north of downtown. They occupy city streets and parks, as well as apparently a police precinct building. Now, uh, about the occupation, as far as I know, the precinct building is, is like locked and closed and just abandoned. Not that they're they're really occupying it, but they're kind of like. But that's great, right? This enclave, dubbed the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, or Chaz, is now making headlines around the world. It's Newly assembled residents have declared Chaz an independent nation apart from both Seattle and America, and thus exempt from laws and local police jurisdiction. They have set up fences and checkpoints around the area. So much for open borders. Now, again, uh, you know, here I think when I first started reading, I was like, Jeff, are are you showing some bias here in the inaccuracies that you're including in the story? Because yeah, they they set up uh, fences and, and, and checkpoints. But they are actually relatively open borders. As far as from all the accounts that I've been reading, like, they're they're just keeping out cops and government officials. People are, and of course, if you're undercover, this has got to be riddled with undercover cops right now. You know, have a little sympathy for that, please, Jeff. But people were able to come and go freely, you know, more than when the police were there, you know, managing the protest with uh, tear gas and rubber bullets. And already urban legends are proliferating about warlords taking over, extortion and shakedowns, replacing taxes, and new forms of quasi-private security taking hold. Yeah, so that, now, some of this, you go, know, well, urban legends. Well, you're citing urban legends, why are you, yeah, now, it's funny, because Jeff comes out, it's seemingly really against this before giving a more reasoned consideration, and then coming out against this, but. Nobody knows how long the situation will persist, but recall how 2011's Occupy Wall Street demonstrations lasted many months. Of course, Capitol Hill, like all urban neighborhoods, is a mix of public and private property. Ingress and egress for residents and businesses takes place via public streets, which are severely impaired at the moment. Property values, the viability of retail stores, and the general quietude and livability of this gentrified neighborhood are very much in flux. Now, again, uh, impaired at the moment, Maybe they're getting more traffic generally and uh, because of the attention, but um, are, are they, is it impaired more than when there were cops there? Again, you know, is, is it more impaired than how it was before all the protests? Oh, yeah, for sure. Property values, the viability of retail sources, the general quietude and livability of this gentrified neighborhood are very much in flux. Anyone who owns a condo, shop, or restaurant in the area has a right to be angry in an argument for monetary compensation from both the protesters themselves and the city government that has so badly failed them. Now, if the protesters didn't violate the property rights, and you know, you don't have a claim for monetary compensation. You own a restaurant. If I have an angry protest on a public street in front of your restaurant and it drives away your business, you don't have a right to, to sue me for that. If I put up a bad review and just call out your, your restaurant For having crappy food, you don't get to sue me for that, right? So now, do they get to sue the government that failed them? So this, I'm, I think Jeff gets this point totally wrong. And that yeah, you have a right to be angry. Um, you have an argument. Okay, so Jeff says you have an argument. I'll give him that. You have an argument for the city government that has so badly failed them. Yeah, the Supreme Court decided. Jeff knows this, right? The Supreme Court decided a long time ago that. Police governments have no obligation to defend you. So Jeff says, good luck with that in the Seattle courtroom. Yeah, exactly. What about the purely public, i.e., government-owned land and buildings around Capitol Hill? To the extent that the occupied buildings and streets belong to the city of Seattle, are the protesters legitimately occupying them? And this is the great question where I, I think it's very appropriate for Jeff to give them the benefit of the doubt. Can anyone, Seattleite or not, make a valid claim to such property? Are they illegal squatters or legitimate homesteaders? <clears throat> now, I think, that Jeff, that's an unnecessarily binary question. Because, you know, is it, because are they illegal squatters? You would be an illegal squatter, right, if you went and started living or doing stuff or occupying private property that people didn't want you on. You're not an illegal squatter if you do it on unclaimed land, or you do it on illegitimately claimed land, right, as government-claimed land, or on land that you have a partial claim to, right? So if a group of citizens say, hey, we're separating from this government system, and we're taking our share, or some proxy of it, or just what's immediately practical, we're taking our share, we're taking a share of it with us. You know, we're taxpayers, we're Seattle residents, and this is, you know, why Jeff, I believe, uh, uses the term Seattleite or not. You know, if you're a Seattle City taxpayer, do you you have more of a claim to that property? Yeah, you know, in some general abstract sense. But are they legitimate homesteaders? Well, it's not really a legitimate homesteading unless it's unclaimed or abandoned property. Now, this is great because this gets to the next part where Jeff is quoting one of my favorite authors, Walter Block. So the next paragraph of Jeff writing is, It seems like an absurd question on its face, and it is. Surely the forceful takeover of a long-established area cannot be legitimate, even if a few government-owned roads and buildings make up or muck up the principles involved. But no less than Professor Walter Block likens government-owned property to virgin territory, albeit stolen, available to any claimants for homesteading. In Block's concession, anything owned by the City of Seattle, libraries, buildings, equipment, roads you name it as, as, as wide open to anyone as a virgin tract of land in deepest Alaska never touched by humans. Quote, I do not at all claim that property such as government roads or libraries is unowned. Rather, I claim these holdings were stolen. I guarantee, I agree that the state now possesses them. I argue only that this is unjustified. And yes, I insist. The same libertarian analysis can be applied in this context, of context to virgin and stolen land. Why? This is because for the libertarian at least as I can screw them, stolen land is the jury virgin land ready for the next homesteader to seize it on the assumption that the rightful owner cannot be located or acquiesces in the state's seizure, or that arguendo we can ignore this rightful owner. Now, one place I would I I, I would tweak Walter's statement, and I say that. Uh, as a man for whom I have great intellectual respect with, with some hesitation here, that the uh, you cannot ignore the rightful owner uh, in, in the case of a state seizure like this. You know, if the state, if, if, if government steals land, you know, like from the Native Americans, right, and, and kicks people off land, and it's been abandoned, and the people who were there, them, they dead, all their ancestors are dead, anybody with any illegitimate, any concept of a legitimate claim to it is dead, and this is the government saying they own it, the government owns it, yes, then you can ignore any potential rightful owner because they don't exist. But in this case, there's at least some kind of, uh, you know, claim for taxpayers, for people who have been you know have had it stolen from them, and their implications to reclaiming its use. So I think it's a little more nuanced than that. Seattle's mayor, Jenny Durkan, may not go quite as far as Dr. Block, which he does appear to acknowledge because, of course, she wouldn't say it's stolen. Uh, but she does appear to acknowledge the new uh, community, essentially colonizing major thoroughfares in the Emerald City. She may not be ready to grant the Chaz outright ownership of the streets in question, but neither is she setting any deadlines for eviction. Quote, uh, Mayor Jenny Durkin from Twitter, I remain committed to working with the community, including the organizers currently in Capitol Hill, to reimagine how we do things in the city and what investments in public health, safety, and economic justice look like. I'm working with Seattle PD Chief Carmen Best, and listening to community to understand how we can continue to build trust between our Seattle police officers and the community around the East Precinct. Clearly, the mayor is in the midst of a dangerous situation, both literally for the people in the CHAS and in terms of her own political career. It's a public relations nightmare from a purely legal perspective what grants her authority over who occupies Capitol Hill. One answer is taxes, says Dr. Hoppa. Hoppe. In his view, the streets of Seattle are not virgin territory available to homesteaders, but rather akin to land held in trust by admittedly unworthy state agents on behalf of taxpayers. If those trustees won't sell the land or other property outright and return the funds to taxpayers, Hoppe's view is that they at least ought to operate and maintain such property on their behalf. So for the purpose of countering Dr. Block's contention, that government property should be viewed as open to homesteading. And only for that purpose, Hoppe says, Public property should be viewed as being owned by the taxpayers. As such, it should be managed on behalf of the long-suffering, net taxpaying citizens as a matter of simple justice. And yeah, a- absolutely. Why, like, yeah, why not? The only caveat here is that in in you know going to Block's position is when there is no legitimate public usage that the taxpayers have any claim to. It's just land the government stole and is just sitting on and sequestering. Right now, with Shad. Neither of these perspectives answer the question. I think you need my taking parts of both to really understand what's going on with Chaz and come to a decision on whether their claim is legitimate or not, or rather, to what degree it is legitimate. Principles aside, the essence of ownership is control. Bureaucrats, police, and politicians who control access to and use of public property are de facto owners because only they can sell, encumber, or control its use. The average American's ownership claim to the local playground or city library is virtually nil. Simply try sleeping in them overnight and you'll quickly find out who really owns them. So for the moment, the Seattle protesters have the greatest control over Capitol Hill and hence an ownership claim of sorts under the brute force of possession is nine tenths of the law. Whether their claim is valid comes down to whether they are illegal squatters or righteous walk-in homesteaders. Again, no, this is I I have to agree. with I, I mean, I have to disagree with 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 Jeff here. And and Jeff, I gotta say, I would I would love to have you on my show. Let's set this up. Let's let's do an interview and, and see if, if we can come to uh, a perhaps more nuanced understanding for both of us here, or either of us. But you you, you set up this bi- binary proposition: either they're illegal squatters or righteous homesteaders. What if they're taxpayers claiming back their share? That would satisfy both the Lockean and, excuse me, both the Hoppian and the Blockian criteria here. Gosh, that's got to be music to some really enthusiastic intellectual libertarian ears. We have thus satisfied both the Blockian and the Hoppian criteria with this analysis that shows the Chaz protesters, if only in their claiming of government property for an autonomous zone, are legitimate in doing so. In a densely settled area like Seattle, with a long history of property titles flowing from valid sales, the question becomes absurd. Their protests and encampments directly affect the undisputed private property all around them. Now, that, see, this is, again, I gotta d- disagree with Jeff. Affecting private property is not the same as violating private property. Now, to the extent that they're forcing a private property owner to be now a part of CHAZ and not giving them the option to defect back to the United States, yeah, that, that's a violation of private property. I would not be supporting that. Um, no, certainly not. Uh, but who says they're denying that? If any property owners said, you know, we don't want to be part of this? We, you know, if they do, and, and there's some denial of, of, of a private property owner bringing in representatives of the U.S. government or police. Yes, you know, there are certainly other, lots of other things that, as the SJWs would say, problematic about that, even for a libertarian. The Seattle government has thoroughly controlled the roads and police using funds forcibly taxed from Seattle residents, Hill residents, businesses, and visitors rely and depend on existing understandings and contractual arrangements. Seattle cannot be homestead and not even city property in any conceivable manner that is justice to its current inhabitants. And to the extent that they've paid for it all through taxes, their right to evict the Chaz protesters clearly supersedes any right to conflate occupation with protest. So this is where, again, like I'm barely on the side of supporting this, where if, if, if I take the hopping analysis and say that this is justified because as taxpayers, the protesters in Chaz have a claim to say, you know what, we're taking, we're leaving and we're taking our share of what we pay for as taxpayers then their process is not legitimate and it it shouldn't be born out of protest and conflict but rather out of uh, a more peaceful process where they say hey guys we're petitioning for our share if you won't give it to us you know then then we'll take it i mean that's that that would be better like kind of how the american revolution worked with a you know petition of uh, for a redress of grievances before forceful rebellion so do they have a right to, to evict them? Yeah, I don't see that. I think it's an appropriate property rights analysis. But if you want to go that way with it, Jeff, you also have to respect that the property uh, claim by the taxpayers as a whole also applies to the subset of the protesters who's saying, I mean, we want our share, we want to be out of the system. It's tempting to dismiss the Seattle protesters en masse because of their terrible and violent political beliefs and their terrible designs for remaking America without property or markets. Yeah, there's a lot of that. But, you know, is that all of them? Would you condemn people doing a, a good thing because some of them have bad ideas? I don't think that's really fair either. Again, if we don't hang together, we will all hang separately. I think it's very important to remember here. Um, but that doesn't change the thorny question about how to deal with them here and now. If they are illegal squatters, not to mention disruptors of many who live or work in the area, then their forcible removal is justified. But New York City lacked the political will to remove Occupy Wall Street campers from Zuccotti Park for many months. Will ultra-woke Seattle in 2020 with its obliging mayor evict the Chaz protesters anytime soon? <clears throat> I, I don't think so. This is going to be here for a while. It's nice to see this kind of play out. And I doubt it's going to play out the way that Jeff and I, I think, would like to see it play out as a property rights negotiation between the protesters and the city of Seattle. Uh, negotiate on behalf of the rest of the taxpaying public of the city of Seattle. But this is still a, a an exciting assertion of sovereignty that even if it has elements so, you know, there are elements that are illegitimate. If they just said, hey, we're taking the six-block area, then there's private property in here, and the private property owners didn't have the option in the process to say, eh, no, we're going to stick with the USA. Then yeah, that's illegitimate. But if the claiming of the government property, the roads and the parks and things like that, and government buildings, uh, that is legitimate because they are taxpayers with a claim to it as much as anybody else. And they're saying we're suggesting a different use of these government resources. We hope that this is respected and this is how we're going to assert this this control, this property right, which is Jeff, which is Jeff correctly points out, really is the essence of, of ownership. So, uh, you know, we're going to keep looking at these issues one way or another. As a libertarian, there's even if you disagree with it, even if you're just barely on the other side of the line, as Jeff is here, you should be celebrating this and saying, yeah, it's, it, as Thomas Jefferson said, it might be done wrong, but it still needs to be celebrated to keep the spirit of rebellion and resistance alive. And there's no more American way to do that than by declaring your independence as they have. At least to one degree or another with the Chaz in Seattle. Checking back in with comment, Jim Freedom. Any other uh, any comments on on that? I was I was looking forward to that segment. I hope we can get Jeff on and get into this directly. I you know we we have this this slight difference. I wouldn't give a blood and soil speech.
1: Mm-hmm. I actually
0: respect that he did it, but uh, I have a lot of intellectual respect for him. I think we could have a fun conversation. People want to see that.
1: Oh, I'm sure. I'll bet you they would. You, uh, Marcus will probably get on that, see what he can do with that.
0: So that I mean, I, I, I had, like, I think in that segment, my ultimate libertarian nerdy moment. I have to go back, because that was so cool. Therefore, by this analysis, we have satisfied both the Blockian and Hoppian criteria. <laughs> 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 All right. I hope I'm not the only one geeking out on that. Any more super chats? Any good comments, Jim?
1: Uh, there are no more super chats going on. I've been scrolling through. People are having a conversation. Uh, what was it? Where was that one? Psychic Taxi ass. It it isn't a pandemic as much as it is a dem panic?" <laughs> we'll spin on that. I like that.
0: <laughs>
1: yep. Yep. All right.
0: Well, hey, Jim. Uh, you were supposed to talk about this earlier. Do we? Do you have something in mind for giving away uh, a producer club membership today? Maybe we could. What What day is today? It's Tuesday.
1: Tuesday.
0: Um. Maybe we could we could spread it out over the week. You know, the next few shows and announce it on Friday. Do you have any ideas for giving away uh Patreon producer club membership?
1: Uh, well, just what we always go with is the top. The top comment. um, I like it when you come up with something that you're looking for, and you look for it from the people. Like the uh, COVID is less dangerous than contest. I like those. We just have to do we
0: we do this every day. Can we do this every day? One a day. Whoever has the 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 high, whoever just is one up for auction every day by super chat. And remember, this is the perk for the if you become a ten dollar a month. Patreon. If we do this right now, the bidding is at five dollars, right? That's our top super yeah. chat today. Yeah. I don't like when we did this on Friday. We we did them all we just said anybody who does nineteen ninety nine or more can skip the Patreon and go straight to the producers club. I don't know.
1: That sounds that sounds pretty good.
0: Alright, so th- right now that's it. Whoever who who was it? Feel bad for forgetting the name now because it's someone who who did this is a follow. Uh, Daniel Henry. No, no, today's five dollars.
1: Oh, today's five dollar. Yeah, inside
0: of exchanges. the ages, there it is. So, so talk about Chinese and wearing masks and culture. By the way, someone please find a link about that. About that, explain to me this this whole Chinese wearing medical masks thing or Asian. Like, if, if, if someone can send me like a little analysis on that, I'd love to cover that tomorrow. It, it to satisfy, I, and actually, I think it's a kind of an important part of the narrative, right? Um, yeah. And, um, with, that was a great comment.
1: I always wondered when, when I see uh, Asian people wearing the masks, I always assumed that they were protecting themselves from us, not because they were sick protecting us from them. You know what I mean? Yeah. But, but I don't know. I, I'm saying I assumed that. So, but... That question made me think, oh, what if they do? What if it is just their culture to be nice? And when yeah. they're sick, that's when they wear it, you know?
0: And Well, that doesn't really make sense to do it to protect yourself because unless it's an awareness right. thing. And to be clear, I mean, my understanding of masks is that, and, and this is why doctors and nurses wear them in the hospital. They're protecting you, the patient, from them, right? If, you're, if someone is cutting you open, You don't want a booger to fall out of their whatever, you know, and land in your open surgical wound, right? Like, it's not to protect them from you. The bubble over your face, that protects you from the world. Right. You know, and even then, you can still inhale particulates, but the mask, if someone is sick around you, you see, you know, it goes in, you can, can, I I don't know, it's more effective as a deterrent from spreading it because if you're sneezing or coughing, it, it means that that bubble of projection is much smaller. Right, and, right. All right, all right. So moving on, we're going to cover some headlines. If someone can get me a link explaining the whole thing about Chinese wearing masks, um, yeah, we'd appreciate that. Jim will uh, get that link from the comments or email it to me, adam at thefreedomline.com. And, uh, yeah, the, the auction is live right now, the top bid is $5 to get a Producers Club membership today. And that's the backstage access and access to messaging me 24-7 to talk about content and developing ideas and material for the show to make it the best show possible for you, the viewer. So, to ZeroHedge.com. Whitney, Do Deep State Elements Operate Within the Protest Movement by Tyler Durden. Other by Mike Whitney via the UN's review, revolutions are often, it starts with a quote from a foreign policy journal, revolutions are often seen as spontaneous. It looks like people just went into the street, but it's the result of months or years of preparation. It is very boring until you reach a certain point where you can organize mass demonstrations or strikes if it is carefully planned. By the time they start, everything is over in a matter of weeks. Does anyone believe the nationwide riots and looting are spontaneous reaction to the killing of George Floyd? Oh, of course not. Now, you see, this is combining uh, a couple narratives in my analysis that I think are very important here. One, the fact that we are seeing the George Floyd riots protests as they are, timed as they are, directed as they are, is not organic. It's the product of uh, a lot of organizing leadership movements like uh, BlackLivesMatter.com, the corporate one that is attached to Act Blue and the Democrat Party, and the uh, mainstream media being able to play this up has, has been why this happens now as opposed to when there have been other killings, but also the COINTELPRO aspect of this, which is very important for me, uh, I think, in reminding people that there was this program in the sixties and seventies that the FBI ran to infiltrate the Black Panther and anti-war movements to render them ineffective, were responsible for a lot of the worst evils of assassination by cop of that day. And they only stopped doing it allegedly because they were uncovered by a group of activists who broke into one of their offices in the seventies. And I mean it is a crazy story. If you don't know COINTELPRO, uh look it up. Look at at least read the, the Wikipedia page for COINTELPRO, Pro counterintelligence program, the FBI program. So did they did they really stop doing it because they get they got caught or did they just get to sneakier methods? Did, you, did they just get better with what they were? Well, obviously they got better? It's all too coordinated, too widespread and too much in sync with the media narrative that applauds the mainly peaceful protests while ignoring the vast destruction in cities across the country. What's that all about? Do the instigators of these demonstrations want to see our cities reduced to urban wastelands? where street gangs and teeth of thugs impose their own harsh justice. That's where this is at, isn't it? Of course, there are millions of protesters, protesters who honestly believe they're fighting racial injustice and police brutality and more power to them. But that certainly doesn't mean that there aren't hidden agendas driving these outbursts. Quite the contrary. It seems to me that the protest movement is actually the perfect vehicle for effecting dramatic social changes that only serve the interests of the elites. For example... Who benefits from defunding the police? Not African Americans, that's for sure. Black neighborhoods need more security, not less. And I disagree with that point, of course. And yet the New York Times lead editorial and senator probably announced, yes, we mean literally abolish the police because reform won't happen. Check it out. We can't reform the police. The only way to diminish police violence is to reduce contact between the public and the police. There's not a single era in United States history in which the police were not a force of violence against black people. Policing the South emerged from the slave patrols in the 1700s and 1800s that caught and returned runaway slaves. In the North, the first municipal police departments in the mid-1800s helped squash labor strikes and riots against the rich. Everywhere they have suppressed marginalized populations to protect the status quo. So when you see a police officer pressing his knee into a black man's neck until he dies, that's the logical result of policing in America. When a police officer brutalizes a black person, he was doing what he sees as his job. Now, I disagree, again, with you. There's, both sides on this. There are fine ideas and shitty ideas on both sides of this argument. So, yeah, to, to make this purely about race, when in the prior paragraph they show that it was not just about slavery, but also, uh, you know, labor strikes, that, you know, you had to keep the poor whites working in the factories just as much as you had to keep the poor black slaves on the plantation. Now, yes, uh, I'm not trying to equivocate those things at all. Clearly, one, is much worse than the other. So according to the Times, the problems in single-parent families are in restricted education or limited job opportunities or fractured neighborhoods. The cops have nothing to do with any of these problems. Denial! Whitney. No. The cops have everything to do with these problems because a lot, first of all, a lot of these, you see, there, there are some racists who will use these statistics like, well, black people get arrested, or let say black people commit more crimes. Look at the arrest statistics. Well, no, it's if a black person commits a crime, he's more likely to get arrested than if a white person commits a crime. Like, hello? Now, yeah, then there are the, the secondary criminal problems that that causes, because it aggravates in the black community the natural tendency. So there is a higher rate of criminality among black people, possibly. Now, I, I don't want to say that decisively. It could be from those statistics but not at the levels that the data would suggest. And even that data makes the real criminal rate higher. And so I'm not worried about, you know, well, blacks commit more crimes because, look, they get arrested for cannabis more. Like, or you say, well, yeah, they get arrested for more violent crimes. Fine. But look at how many crimes are happening in the black community. People say, well, look at the black on black crime. Yeah, exactly. Because of the institutionalized on black crime that happens with the drug war, the war on poverty, and all of these things. Yeah, and the police are the enforcers of these policies. Why does that happen? Why is there black-on-black crime at the rate that that there is? How how, how can I blame the police for that? It's quite simple. If black people don't feel comfortable going to the police for protection, because they know they're more likely to get messed with interacting with police, they're more likely to have black market transactions, like around the drug war. They're more likely to have conflicts that they can't have resolved through the establishment channels. Are we supposed to take this seriously? Because the editors of the Times certainly do. They like us to believe that there's this groundswell of support for this loony idea, but there isn't. In a recent poll, more than sixty percent of those surveys surveyed opposed the idea of defunding the police. So the protest movement skipping ahead here, because you know, this isn't just about the infiltration of uh, what's happening for the mass protest, but the bigger narrative. The protest movement is the mask that conceals the maneuvering of elites. The real target of this operation is the constitutional republic itself. Having you see there's some problem with this perspective. Having succeeded in using the lockdown to push the economy into severe recession, the globalists are now inciting a fratricidal war that will weaken the opposition and prepare the country for a new authoritarian order. Yes, if they could get away with that. Skipping ahead to a little economic news from the Associated Press. U.S. retail sales up a record 17.7% in a partial rebound. And the, uh, let's see, where where was this? Was it just on Drudge Report? It said that this was like the, the record, you know, jump over a quarter. U.S. retail sales jumped by a record 17.7% from April to May, with spending partially rebounding after the coronavirus had shut down businesses, flattened the economy, and paralyzed consumers during the previous two months. I just wanted to address this because I I want to make a prediction that Donald Trump is going to be breaking. We had the best quarter ever for retail sales improvement. Good for us. And just kind of conveniently leave out the point that he caused the single biggest drop in retail sales uh, with a virus with a lower mortality rate than trying to spend a counterfeit $20 bill in Minneapolis as the excuse. And another related headline from MSN.com by Bloomberg, Trump Team Weigh's $1 trillion for infrastructure to spur the economy. The Trump administration is preparing a nearly $1 trillion infrastructure proposal as part of its push to spur the world's largest economy back to life according to people familiar with the plan. So my other prediction here is that as Trump goes more and more socialist, so will his so-called freedom-loving Conservative apologists, and suddenly you'll see people who were against any kind of inter- economic intervention suddenly. well, well, these are extenuating circumstances, and if Trump does it, then it's okay. Um, oh, I got two other big stories I want to get into, but I'd rather do the ha- happiness block today. I've been sitting on this for too long. Uh, this is from Stanford Advocate: Police detain armed militia pro uh, militia members after man is shot at Albuquerque protest. This is a real, real bad hash job of a headline and a a real abuse of police power. I'm going to have to explain that. And the next one from CNN why Trump's Supreme Court appointee Neil Gorsuch just protected LGBTQ rights? Yes, you know we're going to have fun with that. But first, let's talk about happiness. Now, I'm not going to sit here. And try to give you the definitive manifesto about happiness. But what I want to do is connect what we're experiencing today with current events, your life, and the most important thing to remember about happiness which is that it's a choice, a state of contentment, emotional well-being, goodness in your brain, happiness, right? So we're going to get to the section in Freedom today, Happiness Causes Freedom, because a lot of people have wanted me to start reading sections of the book and explaining them. And I thought this is a great way to start. So I'm going to read the first paragraph, and then we're going to cover a bunch of news stories and bring in some data and some studies to back up and underscore what I'm saying here. So gather around for a little little story time, children. No, it's not a story. But Chapter 9, Section 4 of Freedom, Happiness Causes Freedom. And this is the section that I wrote when I was in jail. If we don't know how to be happy, what's the point of being free? What good is it to live in a free society, in a free country, or a free world if we are so emotionally crippled that we are incapable of enjoying it? Why would we struggle to escape the oppression of police, parliaments, and presidents if only to remain enslaved to fear? and insecurity. Many of us would assume freedom should lead to happiness, but that does not correctly describe the relationship. The way most of us understand freedom and happiness is backwards. Happiness is not the result of freedom. Happiness causes freedom. So to the next story, we go to The Associated Press, by Tamara Lush, poll. Americans are the unhappiest they've been in 50 years. Spoiler alert, 2020 has been rough on the American psyche. Folks in the U.S. are more unhappy today than they've been in nearly 50 years. This bold yet unsurprising conclusion comes from the COVID response tracking study conducted by NORC at the University of Chicago. It finds that just 14% of American adults say they're very happy, down from 31%. You said the same in 2018. That year, 23%. They'd often or sometimes felt isolated in recent weeks, now 50%. And think about this, 31%, almost a third of the population in just 2018, so they were very happy. I'm very happy. Since I wrote this, at least, since I realized since I really incorporated this idea, and I hope nothing else from today's show, you're able to incorporate this idea because it will permanently make you happier for the rest of your life. Yes, it is that powerful of an idea of being able to choose happiness, to understand it and have a healthy relationship with your own mind and, and, and emotional state. But just for the country, think about this. That third of the population that was very happy, going around every day, very happy, just got cut in half. How many of the very unhappy, clinically depressed, suicidal people were those very happy people holding up, perhaps? The effects of this shutdown and forced unemployment crisis in period of isolation are going to have far, far-reaching psychological effects as well the survey conducted in late May draws on nearly a half century of research from the general social survey which has collected data on american attitudes and behaviors at least every other year since 1972 no less than 29% of americans have ever called themselves very happy in that survey 29% so look at this on the on the chart if you pull it up please cj that that middle line That dark blue, very happy, has been cruising since 1972 between 30 and 40 percent. Look, high point 1974, 38 percent, low point 1972, 30 percent, hitting that again, 94, 85, and then 2018. 31%, 31%, low side of normal. 2020, down to 14%. Now, where do those people go? Now, there are three options on this one. Very happy, pretty happy, or not too happy. Kind of vague there, right? Well, we look at the other two lines of the chart. The majority of Americans, between 50 and 60%. That line, similarly cruising since 1972 53% hitting a low 1974 49 a high 60 in 1985 now up to 62% but you look at the bottom line the orange line they're not too happy 17% was the high in 1972 certainly not our best economic days Down to 8% in 1988. Maybe things were looking better. 2018, still staying normal. Cruising around that 10% mark. 13. 2020. Shoots up to 23%. That's a significant shift. Sounds like America, and really the world that is experiencing similar issues right now, could benefit from stopping the talk about the fear and anxiety about coronavirus and racial division and riots and protests and talk about happiness for a few minutes. But before we talk about happiness anymore, we go to studyfinds.org. Global study reveals four in ten adults living with a gastrointestinal disorder. (laughs) Well, Adam, that took a weird turn, didn't it? Bear with me. Gothenburg, Sweden, Sweet, and everyone will eventually deal with an upset stomach at some point in their life. For some, those troubles don't go away fast and can affect their quality of life. A new study has revealed gastrointestinal disorders are more common than you might think. Nearly half of all adults worldwide are living with them. According to the research published in the journal Gastroenterology, 4 in 10 adults across the globe are dealing with a gastrointestinal disorder. Over 73,000 people in 33 countries they were surveyed about their stomach issues. Nearly half of the women questioned were found to have at least one functional gastrointestinal disorder. It's striking how similar these findings are between countries. We can see some variations, but in general these disorders are equally common whatever the country or continent. is co-author Magnus Simon from the University of Gothenburg in a statement. Now here's an interesting feature of this. The stigma. Simren and the researchers in Sweden add that patients responding to web-based surveys had a much higher rate of FGIDs compared to people taking in-person interviews. So clearly, the Internet causes gastrointestinal disorders, and we need to abolish the Internet. No, obviously, there's a different fact here. Causation and correlation do not always equate. We don't know why we're seeing this difference, but one reason might be that people think it's embarrassing to talk about it stomach and bowel symptoms to someone sitting in front of them so 24 countries conducted the survey through the internet seven used in person wide range of discomfort so this is this is everything from uh, you know heartburn acid reflux indigestion irritable bowel syndrome constipation bloating chronic discomfort things like that so here's where it might get very interesting. And you're going to see just how we're going to bring these two issues together here. Also, from studyfinds.org, surprise, surprise, smile for your stomach. Happiness may guard against deadly gut infections. And you're like, whoa, 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 wait a <laughs> whoa. okay, Okay, Adam, nice leap back to the main subject here. Positivity isn't always easily achieved, but a new study provides yet another reason we should all do our best to inject a bit of optimism into our mindsets. Researchers from the UT Southwestern Medical Center
1: have found evidence
0: that serotonin, the brain chemical responsible for feelings of happiness and well-being, may be able to stop harmful intestinal pathogens from causing deadly infections. Essentially, the study indicates that happiness can protect against serious gut infections. Yes, serotonin is almost always thought of as a brain chemical, but about 90% of it is actually produced in the gastrointestinal tract. There's also trillions of bacteria living in the stomach as well, and while the vast majority of those bacteria are good and beneficial, some pathogenic, pathogenic bacteria also make their way to the gastrointestinal tract when this happens it can lead to serious and sometimes fatal gut infections. So we know that this is not the most important connection with happiness. So what? Well, Maybe you don't know, get a little diarrhea because I'm one. That's not. That's, if, if being happy for its own sake wasn't enough, I mean, like, let's say, like, even even if you just like, have, like, when is it when is it appropriate to not be happy, right? Because this is again, when we're going to come back to this about emotional freedom. Which is the first section, chapter nine, in in the book. Um, you know, when it, when it comes to emotional freedom, you as a as, as a conscious entity, as a, as a human mind that functions. Now uh, caveat, you know, if your body's not working properly, if your brain, brain chemistry is messed up, you know, maybe you got to address that before your your capability is is fully restored to be able to be happy, to choose to be happy. What I mean by that is that. You're going to have emotional reactions that you can't control, right? And happiness can be a re- – you're going to have a happy response. Like you saw something nice and you even smile. It made you happy. You know, really the emotional response – really it's, it's more pleasure, right? Because it's you're being given pleasure. Some people screw this up, right? This is kind of how depression works. You can get pleasure and your brain chooses depression instead of choosing happiness, right? The natural response, though, is pleasure and happiness are associated. But you can have negative responses too, right? You can have pain. Uh, you can have fear, these things that make you angry. All of these animalistic emotional responses are an undeniable part of the human condition. So when I talk about emotional freedom and emotional mastery and choosing happiness, I don't mean some like you know ideal blissful Buddhist state where like you can have a you know a nail driven through your nutsack and go oh, no it's okay I hey, hey, smile no um it's not to try to pretend that that you should achieve some you know otherworldly state of you know, meditative bliss, but that you can control your response to the reaction, your conscious response. That's your choice. You cannot choose the animalistic reaction, but you can choose how you consciously choose to configure your mind, your attitude, your outlook. That's your choice. So here's another reason why it's important, skipping ahead to the Daily Mail. Can negative thinking lead to dementia? People with a gloomy outlook could be more likely to get degenerative illness, research suggests. Repetitive negative thoughts, also known as RNT, could lead to Alzheimer's. This way of thinking can lead to a buildup of harmful deposits in the brain. A journalist called for more research into RNT as a potential factor for dementia. And now, I didn't really answer the question that I proposed a second ago, right? Like, when? When is it okay, when, when should you choose to not be happy, right? Because, yeah, y- y- the emotional response time is when you don't have that choice. But when, when is it okay to just choose to be unhappy? I think if you're focused on something in order to address, like, if you choose to, like, hey, something's, something's really messed up. I'm I'm going to put aside choosing to be happy in order to choose to be motivated by fear of loss, to be motivated, uh, to, to be protective, to be productive, to to make sure that in the future I, I can be happy as my default state the majority of the time. So there are times when you go, well, I'm in, I'm in survival mode. And that's okay. But the point of survival mode is to get out of survival mode. And this is built into our biology, right? You've all heard of the fight or flight reflex. Right, that in times of overwhelming fear, you have a, 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 a tendency to either fight what you're facing or to run away from it, fight or flight. And, and that's fine, but when we allow the mainstream media, the fear-mongering of government, to keep us in a distressed, distressed state, we, we are giving up our, our, our emotional freedom, our emotional sovereignty, to these outside forces. That's the worst kind of, of slavery, to, to allow yourself to be an emotional slave to the people around you because they're going to manipulate you. That's what that's what people do. And, and through the media, through institutions, through major mass communications and propaganda, that's how they control us. It's a dangerous form of emotional manipulation. All you have to do is make the right choice to choose an attitude of happiness. To choose to make happiness your default position. So, a couple more stories here. Also from the Daily Mail. How to live to 100 and enjoy it. Yes, diet and exercise do matter, but scientists are only just realizing friendships can add years to your life, too. Marta Zaraska has been a writer for Washington Post and Scientific American. Scientists say... We need to look at the softer social and psychological approaches. A committed romantic relationship can lower your risk of early death by 49%. And, yeah, nature, nurture, causation, correlation. Do healthier people get married and live longer? Does marriage make you live longer? Um, Yeah, not relevant for this conversation. But, as it says, but in our obsession with this wellness junkie lifestyle of, Uh, Diets, organic goji berries, cardio workouts, fitness trackers. Are we missing the real drivers of long life? As a health writer on the Washington Post and Scientific American, I dig through hundreds of research papers every year and talk to dozens of scientists. And out of this research, a new story is beginning to emerge, suggesting that exercise gadgets and calendars are not as important to health as we used to think. Studies that shatter long-held beliefs are repeated over and over again in academic papers. To encourage longevity, to make it to 100, scientists say that rather than focus solely on diet and exercise, we need to concentrate on softer social and psychological approaches that will benefit us. The number one thing you can do for a long life is to have a committed romantic relationship. Second, having a large social network of friends, family, and neighbors, which can reduce the likelihood of early death by 45%. Third, foster a conscientious personality. This cuts the risk by 44%. So conscientious personality. That is so important. Skipping ahead. As it says, rolling your eyes at him makes you fat. In a fascinating 2016 experience experiment, couples were asked to discuss a topic they disagreed on for 20 minutes while researchers noticed noted their levels of hostility, including eye-rolling and critical comments. After the marital squabbling session was over, the husbands and wives were served a fatty meal of egg and sausage, totaling almost 1,000 calories. For the next seven hours, the volunteers remained at the lab while their bodily functions were repeatedly measured. Amazingly, the couples who fought most unpleasantly had lower resting energy expenditure and higher insulin after the greasy meal. meaning their bodies were not dealing well with all that fat. The difference in energy intake from the food between the dirty fighters and those who were nicer to their spouses was 128 calories. Over a year, that could add up to almost eight pounds of extra weight. Eye-rolling really can make you fat. Whoa, yeah, just that, thats that's a cool study. There's a really cool methodology breakdown and they're saying what's, they're asking the question what would what difference in your life uh, or, or really, really what difference to your body weight would it make if you argued with your spouse for 20 minutes a day? You would gain eight pounds a year now it's, it, that's uh, th- there's one criticism I would have of this study which is that that extrapolation is not entirely fair to me. But what's re- really important about this is that it could be because of the metabolic effects that are negative about this. Now, you can argue and stay skinny. Like, <laughs> like yeah, you, can, you can overcome this. It's not, hey, if you argue, you're going to gain weight. It's that it messes up your metabolism that way. So if you're going to argue and stay skinny, you're going to be fighting this hormonal imbalance that comes from the negativity that, res, that, that results from just 20 minutes of verbal conflict. So it's not just hey, you're going to have to work harder. What are the what are the negative impacts of this? It's your hormones, your stress hormones. You're staying in that fight or flight response, and that's going to have it's going to create more bad habits it's going to compound it's going to have more effect and you have to break this cycle for yourself for your own benefit if you get sucked into this so one more section of the story a positivity folio pays dividends according to william shakespeare in the taming of the shrew frame your mind to mirth and to merriment which bars a thousand harms and the lengthens life as if yeah, we knew this hundreds of years ago it's and, and, and it is only, you know, modern mainstream media that is leading us away from this basic awareness. And, of course, the modern paradigm of corporatism and governments and all that. Science is now catching up with literature. Among the 10,000 academic papers that come out each year on the topic of subjective well-being, many are finding that positivity equals better health and a better shot at becoming a centenarian. The science is a way of injecting more positivity into your marriage. Screen, is creating something psychologists call a Positivity portfolio. Make a list of things you love about your spouse. Place happy photos of the two of you around the house and listen to your special songs from time to time. Express gratitude when your partner does something nice. Thank them for it. are proven links between your emotions and your health and a happy, stress-free relationship can mean a long life. So what could... I mean, there's, there's, there's more in this. It's really funny. I, I love this kind of practical advice. Um, part of it is, uh, you know, BFFs uh, before KOFs. That's best friends forever before kind of friends. So having, having good friends rather than, like, a broad social network. I mean, having deeper friendships and meaningful connections with people. Have hot chocolate after an argument. Organize your cupboards. Having a sense of organization um and so this is the conscientiousness part and i love this if you were to pick just one personality trait to work on in order to increase your chances of living to a hundred it would be conscientiousness a penchant for tidying planning and preparing and i love it it's is like oh, my life philosophy in black and white because this is a big part of you know what we're doing here at the garden of freedom We've got a bit of a mess here. We've got to clean up right now, I should say, uh, from from not living here for so long. But tidying, planning, and preparing, and being conscientious. And this is about, you know, conscientiousness is, is a much deeper theme in your life that is essential for happiness. If you're not conscientious of your mental state, you can't make that choice. It takes that. It has, you have to have a habit. Of, of meditative activities in your life, of, of, of good sleep hygiene, of, of getting a good night's sleep, of practicing these things. You know, I love the idea of gratitude exercises and, you know, having some way to incorporate that in your own life, whether it's, you know, before you go to bed or before you wake up, you write down, you know, three things that you're grateful for, you know, all of those things are really helpful and, just, and they compound in a positive way. The more you build routine and habit and structure, in that positivity, that's what you're training your brain for, to be happy. So one of the modern threats comes to us from the New York Post, nypost.com. And this is about organizing and being conscientious about the information that comes into your life, your influences. What media are you consuming? Are you watching a lot of, you know, angry newscasters, you know, pounding their fists on the news desk on cable TV every night? Are, are you... You're watching, you know, the the, the the crazy conspiracy channels that just assume that everybody in the world is evil and there's no hope for humanity. And, and so this is the new term for this. New York Post, are you a doom-scrolling junkie? The new scary coronavirus habit. And it's not new to coronavirus, but it is at a new scale, uh, really, by, by a number of factors. One is just the overwhelming nature of the bad news since this coronavirus thing kicked off, right? We used to say, even in March, when we first started getting going with this, this would be just trying to keep up with everything, the flow of news. It was like drinking from FIROs every time I looked at the Drudge Report, like, holy crap, you know, every day feels like a week, and it's all bad. It's stuff you got to keep up with because it's a threat to your life. It's going to affect you. Ever find yourself glued to your phone screen, mindlessly thumbing through depressing news for hours on end? Well, now there's a word for that, doom-scrolling. The trendy new phrase, which has now joined the ranks of other coronavirus-inspired terms like quarantini and Zoom bombing, is making, that's making an alcohol drink with whatever's available while you're in quarantine. Uh, Zoom bombing, I think you can figure that out, bombing a Zoom video meeting, right? is making the rounds on Twitter to describe everyone's incessant need to consume somber stories. Things are doing a lot more under isolation. Cooking, cleaning, taking deep breaths while walking dogs, doom scrolling, sleep meditations, FaceTiming, existential crisis scene, tweeted Ann Allen Peterson, a senior culture writer at BuzzFeed News on March 22nd. I've been reading easy junk just to keep me from doom scrolling lately, and it feels so good to exercise my brain with some substance, admitted another user. At brainy, mixed-off face. And, you know, this is something I, I kind of grapple with myself, right, because I want to keep up with the news. I want to follow what's going on. And I do kind of limit myself, right? You kind of have to in order to maintain a, a positive, healthy perspective. And I do make an effort in what we're covering with the news, with Adam versus the man, to make sure that we have segments about happiness every now and then. We, we cover positivity. We cover human progress. We talk about the underreported stories about things getting better every day. So, you know, I wonder if, if, if you're tempted to doom scrolling, would, you know, mindless entertainment be better? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And this, again, where conscientiousness comes in. If you can direct your brain, your attention to more positivity, to things that enrich your life, to things that, that uh, you know, are, are educational, informative, as well as if you If you can't do that, if you don't, obviously that would be the ideal information diet. But at some point, you don't have the energy for that. If you need some mindless escape, at least make sure it's it's humorous and and positive and friendly. Even if it's neutral in terms of its greater value, you're getting positive value out of that. If you go, well, I'm bored. I'm gonna doom scroll. I'm gonna just go. and don't follow people like that. You know, control. Be conscientious of what you put in your brain. You know, I, I hear woke people talking about oh, you got to be. Careful about what you put in your body and no GMOs and process. It's like, yeah, but what about your brain? or what you put in your body? Like, what about your brain? Isn't that more important? So back to uh the New York Post. The apt expression has been picking up seams since it was included in a recent LA Times story about new terms entering our pandemic lexicons. But some trailblazers have been throwing them, throwing around the term ever since lockdown life began last month, including including Court's reporter Karen Ho, she's been doling out the moniker and posts to remind people to give themselves a break from the doom and gloom of COVID 19 news. This is awesome. I encourage everybody to do this. Whatever you can, uh, build reminders into your life. And she said it's okay not to develop a new skill or side project during a pandemic, just like how it's okay to set limits on how much you doom scroll at night. Yes. You cannot be too conscientious about your own mental health and well-being and lifestyle. And, you know, like I said, at the Garden of Freedom, and what I've always advocated as a libertarian, like even here in the book, you know, the sections before uh, this are health freedom and work freedom. Like that, yeah, being conscientious of your lifestyle is really from the ground up, not being mindless and going with the assumptions of what's been laid out for you before or being a victim of your past trauma and negative thought patterns. You know, a big part of this, too, is just finding whatever therapy that you need personally to retrain your brain. A lot of our negative thought patterns are based on individualized experiences, specific traumas that we've experienced. Who is veterans dealing with PTSD, you know, like I did with Homefront Battle Buddies, uh, our peer support group for Iraq Veterans Against the War, for vets dealing with PTSD. It's so helpful for, for, for people who have made that choice to say, you know what? My brain's doing something I don't like. I could train it to be better. I could train it to be stronger. I could train it to be more effective. And one of the things is I've got this negative thought pattern because I saw this dude die in combat, and I've got this survivor's guilt. I need to talk it out. I need to process this out. This is one of those times. It's okay to not be happy. Like be serious. You know, be concerned. Be afraid that that trauma might ruin your happiness for the rest of your life and then address it properly. Nip it in the bud. As soon as you recognize it, you end that negative thought pattern. And you say, you know what? I'm doing this. I'm taking it seriously so I can get back to being happy. Get away from the doom scrolling. In another post that same day, Karen added, you can keep doom scrolling tomorrow. Others are following soon, as Kelsey Snell with NPR, wrote, quote, today I'm grateful for baby naps, exercise, and fresh air Let's all stop doom scrolling for a bit. Many are actually losing sleep over their doom scrolling habits. And I got to admit, this is something I've done. You know, right before bed, I'm on my phone. Oh, well, let me just drop in and check it on Drudge Report one more time. Let me, just, let me just talk to some new people on Twitter. But, you know, what? I, I don't really, I think for a long time, I've kind of gotten away from, the habit of doom scrolling just based on how I've trained myself to read the news and look at the world and and stay in touch with what I know to be true about the broader positive vision of human progress. And by the way, that's in the book too, Chapter 10, The Future of Freedom. You know, one of my favorite sections here is uh, The Asymptote. And it talks about the, uh, the paradigm shift and, and the increase of the Internet effect and the asymptotes taking, you know, humanity to the next level of human experiences as, as things are accelerating and, and getting faster and faster, improving. So, you know, I, I don't I don't really catch my... Sometimes I'll get caught up with a story and I'll, you know, I'll get, you know, more into it than I should. But that's, again, why I like being organized now and having this show live consistently daily at the same time every day and and being able to build that routine of positivity because it was just, well, it, one of the things I used to do when the show wasn't live and I wasn't I wasn't committed to the time is that I, I would do a kind of, well, I have to make sure that journalistically I've, I've gone down every rabbit hole about this story and I would catch myself, you know, in in, in a certain way doing a kind of uh, doom scrolling in my prep I think I've done Uh, a much better job now of, you know, rearranging my life habits so that I'm not doing that. So, you know, another story about the negative effects of a bad mood, uh, we go to CNET.com of all places, the tech website, how loneliness could be changing your brain and body. And this is really important because, uh, you know, along with that survey of happiness, Americans are very lonely, statistically uh, speaking, at least. People were already lonely before the coronavirus pandemic hit, before COVID-19 stranded folks at home and made getting close to others an unnerving experience. Researchers were realizing Americans were lonelier than ever. A 2018 study from health insurer Cigna found that 54% of 20,000 Americans surveyed reported feeling lonely. In the span of a bit more than a year, the number rose to 61%. Generation Z adults, 18 to 22 years old, are supposedly the loneliest generation, outpacing boomers, Gen Xers, and millennials, despite being more connected than ever. More troubling than the epidemic proportions is that a growing body of research suggests that being lonely for a sustained period of time could be bad for your physical health and mental well-being. The same study from Cigna Place associated health risks on par with smoking and obesity in a a 2018 article in the lancet medical journal described the situation like this imagine a condition that makes a person irritable depressed and self-centered and is associated with a 26 percent increase in the risk of premature mortality but these are strange times as the result of covid19 keeping distance from others is the safest way to stay healthy despite the fact that it could compound feelings of isolation. It's a new reason to consider how loneliness can impact everything from your brain to your heart to your immune system. Now, why we get lonely? Loneliness might conjure images of being apart from friends and family, but the feeling runs much deeper than not having plans on a Friday night or than going stag to a wedding. Evolutionarily, being part of a group has meant protection, sharing the workload, and increased odds of survival. After all, humans take a long time to mature. We need our tribes. It's very distressing when we are not part of a group, said Julianne holt Lundstad, professor of psychology and neuroscience at Brigham Young University. We have to deal with our environment entirely on our own without the help of others, which puts our brain in a state of alert. But that signals, but that also signals the rest of our body to be in a state of alert. Again, fight or flight. Staying in that state of alert, that high state of stress means wear and tear on the body. Stress hormones like cortisol and norepinephrine can contribute to sleeplessness, weight gain, and anxiety over extended periods of exposure, according to the Mayo Clinic. The pandemic, Bolt once that pointed out, is possibly the most stressful experience many people have had in their lifetime. Daily life has been upended, unemployment has, unemployment has skyrocketed, and more than 6 million people around the world have been infected. Normally, immense challenges like those would have you seeking the reassurance and support of family and friends. But due to the nature of the virus, people are at least more physically alone than ever making it that much harder to cope. Now, again, the virtual development, this is why like, we brought you that interview talking about, uh, you know, wireless connectivity, right? You know, how much more connectedness, fighting loneliness would we be capable of if we just had the, the data connections that we're technologically capable of today? We'd be able to create, you know, much better remote virtual experiences that actually combat loneliness in a meaningful way, whereas today, you know, most of us are lucky if we can just do consistent video conferencing. So uh, studying loneliness. Loneliness is something that almost everyone can relate to, but scientists are still working to understand how and why it impacts health, one of the fundamental challenges of the research. Loneliness is a subjective feeling that can't really be measured. Not even the size of a person's social network can guarantee how lonely they are. She said it's a matter of asking people how they feel in surveys or indirectly. uh, Directly, like how often would you say you're lonely or indirectly, do you feel you lack companionship? NASA has been studying the effects of isolation and confinement on astronauts for years, coming to some of the same conclusions as myriad other studies. Isolating conditions can lead to cognitive and behavioral issues. Elsewhere, though, researchers researchers are looking at biological aspects, Of loneliness and how it physically affects the body, that can mean looking at brains. So they said that uh, your risk for Alzheimer's increased 51 percent for each point on the loneliness scale that they use, rating it between one and five. Autopsies were performed on those who died during the study. Loneliness wasn't shown to cause the hallmark brain changes, yeah, uh, with Alzheimer's disease, including nerve plaques and tangles, or tissue damage by lack of blood flow. However, one researcher involved in the study, Robert S. Wilson, said loneliness could make people more vulnerable to the deleterious effects of age-related neuropathology. As Turin Canley, professor of integrative neurosciences at Stony Brook University, said loneliness can be a good predictor of accelerated cognitive decline. So, The connection with health issues isn't entirely understood, but as a general aggravating factor, if you're lonely, you might be less likely to take care of yourself if you're feeling depressed and down on yourself in general. You might not eat as well, drink too much, worry more, sleep insufficiently, and all of those habits can have serious long-term effects on your health. So researchers in a study some 30 years ago with a longitudinal study uh, said, so this was 30 years ago. Participants agreed not only to annual physical and psychological checkups, but to donate their brains when they die. Researchers looked at two regions of the brain related to cognition and emotion. They found genes associated with cancer, cardiovascular disease, and inflammatory disease expressed in those who were lonelier. And it makes sense, right? This is just if loneliness is something that depresses your happiness, your serotonin, increases stress hormones, puts you in a fight-or-flight, you know, reflex uh, of of stress hormones more often because of bad habits and all the other negativity, of course, this is going to have negative health impacts. The future of loneliness, even as states are starting to relax lockdown orders and restrictions on restaurants, bars, and other public places, the role social distancing could play in society is unknown. In April, Harvard researchers said intermittent social distancing could be necessary through 2022, so don't just think this is going to go away. Astronaut uh, NASA astronaut Scott Kelly, who did 340 days in space, wrote a piece for the New York Times in March, offering advice based on his experience. He recommends keeping a journal, sticking to a schedule, and getting a hobby. Nemec from Cigna noted how now more than ever it's important to check in on others and be open to having honest conversations about feelings of loneliness while batting down stigma attached to the feeling. We need to reach out to some friends and make sure we maintain those connections and have meaningful conversations. He said it's important for all of us to be comfortable asking other people how they feel. So finally, one more big positive thing in our habits, getting away from loneliness in order to achieve happiness. How? Studyfinds.org gives us the answer again. Do good, live longer. Volunteering may add years to lifespan, improves overall well being. My little feel good thing, aside from everything I do on my activism that anybody who's healthy can do, is donate blood. I love that. And it's a, you go and connect and give a piece of your body to possibly save the life of someone else's. It's an incredibly satisfying thing that I get in that. The things that I do just to help out neighbors and friends and things we're doing here with the Gardener Freedom, building a facility that can help people and be a resource. So here it is. Whether it's planting trees or serving food to the homeless, volunteering your time for the greater good makes a difference in the lives of many. As it turns out, doing good deeds also benefits your body, too. A new study out of Harvard shows that people who regularly volunteer enjoy longer, happier, healthier lives. When you give, you also receive. So this is about, I mean, there's so many studies back this up. You can still volunteer safely during a COVID-19 outbreak. The authors say the coronavirus lockdown could be the perfect time to start getting involved with your community. And I I, want to use my mother here as one of my most inspiring examples, not just in her attitude and being happy and, and having a positive outlook on life, but also, in the way that she engages with their community even around corona and her thing was getting masked out now she's been involved in community theater in uh the community hospital out there you know and i if i try to say like an exhaustive list of all the things she's done out there on san Lone island in and, and the friday harbor community i'd be selling her short on something but now it's masks people want masks they want to be able to protect others from themselves in case they happen to be uh, uh, asymptomatic carriers. And I totally support that. And they're an island community. They're doing a really good job of, of keeping their cases low and sticking together. And so my mom was organizing an effort to, uh, to make and distribute masks. And a lot of this is for, for people in businesses and hospitals. Like if you're, if you're working a counter, um, you know, you're face to face. This is really, even for me as a customer, just being a bit of a germaphobe, I don't mind. That, you know, at Circle K and so many other retail points, they have the bigger sneeze guard glass now. So I know that if the the person working the machine who's probably at a higher exposure level just because they work retail, maybe they're not as germophobic as me, that I know they're not going to transmit something to me or cough in my face. I'm cool with that. You want to make me wear a mask to come in your store? You know, I might shop somewhere else. But, you know, I'd probably just be like, I'll probably all right, that, that makes you feel safe for me. You think that's appropriate in your store? And you know, I'll comply with that. So, my mom is doing this thing for her community kind of in that spirit, and it's it's a beautiful thing that she's doing volunteering and connecting with people. So, there are plenty of things that you can do right now, which brings us finally to the goal of all of this. Merriam Webster, happiness defined a state of well being and contentment, a pleasurable or satisfying. Experience. So why would you ever choose anything less than that if that is truly your choice, at least most of the time? And as I've said, not being an absolute here, absolutist here, certainly acknowledging some caveats. There are times when, you know, choosing happiness might not be the right thing to do or the most important focus of your life. There are times when you might not be capable of it because your body is working against you. Your own brain chemistry is fighting you. Or there's some immediate trauma that you are experiencing that is overwhelming your emotional reaction. But in terms of your outlook, your attitude, well, let's just go back to the text for more, shall we? Do we need freedom to be happy? Most certainly not. Happiness is not pursued, captured, beaten over the head with a club and hauled home to be enjoyed forever and ever. It is often pointed out that money can't buy happiness. Money can buy happiness only to the point to which money can no longer buy independence, but even that independence is based on an illusion of external conditions. The most successful people, by any measure, are as prone to misery and depression as anyone Looking at the modern world and antidepressant consumption, we might conclude that wealth causes depression. Even a brief examination of the human condition reveals that happiness is not a pursuit as much as a choice. True mental freedom is empowerment to choose your state of mind. If the only happiness you ever know is dependent on external factors, you will remain a slave to circumstance and never be truly happy. You can only swing between happiness and fear knowing deep down that if conditions beyond your control change, you won't be happy. What a sad state of emotional servitude and vulnerability. A crude animal in such a primitive state is dangerously prone to manipulation, while you will never control the challenges that life presents you. And you may never master your animalistic reactions, Your mood and your frame of mind are your choice. This is the unique gift of human consciousness. This is the great beauty of human nature. This is the foundation of our capacity for love and connectedness. And thus, freedom. Being happy is as simple as changing your mind. Of course, this speaks to a range of mental states we can choose. With true mental freedom, we can choose to be determined, thoughtful, compassionate, patient, loving. But beneath all that, why would we ever choose to be any less than perfectly happy while it really is that simple? And it really is that easy. It is a discipline of happiness. Emotions serve an essential role for survival. Fear and the fight-or-flight response have saved countless lives. But such hardwired responses often take over our evolved brains and keep us from fully using them. Rational fears become anxiety and insecurity. Disappointment becomes depression. Hostility becomes anger and hatred. The discipline of happiness is separating these reactions from how we deliberately choose to live our life. It is the practice of living well. This empowerment liberates us as individuals and as a species from all past misdeeds of our primitive nature. Living well is not just the best revenge. It is the only revenge worth having. Happiness is the ultimate measure of success. But if you choose to dwell in fear, disappointment, and hostility, and choose to be unhappy, then you'll be unhappy. We are programmed to fear death, but wouldn't you rather face it rationally, calmly, happily? Fear not only makes us vulnerable to manipulation by those who would oppress us, it also tempts us to become oppressors. The tyranny of democracy encourages the broadest participation in fear-based oppression. Every politician's pitch is based on some version of, if you give me power over you, I can make you happy and take away fear. In the act of voting, we are not choosing leaders for ourselves. We are trying to impose our choice of leaders and fears on others. Instead, we should seek to be the alphas of our own lives. Someone who is truly emotionally free has no need for imposed external authority. The people who are the driving force behind statism are not happy. And truly happy people are not very political. The freedom movement is not a political movement. It is an anti-political movement. A truly happy person can appeal to the better nature of fellow human beings, can meet them with peace and persuasion and displace coercion with voluntary relationships and self-government based on self-ownership. A person who knows their capacity as a free, beautiful, independent person will never say, but what will people think of me? A person who can be happy in any situation will never say, but what if I lose my job? A person who knows self-discipline will never say, but what if the sacrifice is too great? The compassion of a truly happy person will say, How could I possibly not share my joy and let some poor victimizer continue in the misery of oppressing others? Only a mental slave will hate their oppressors. A free mind will pity them and seek to share joy with those who are deficient in love. We should not fight oppression or struggle for liberation, but rather empower those who have succumbed to mental slavery. The greatest weapon against tyranny is a mind that refuses to submit to manipulation. If we want to be warriors for truth, soldiers for justice, and champions of freedom, we must first attain the discipline of happiness in a great capacity for living in love. Be the master of your own mind. Choose your demeanor at all times. Never meet a fellow person with force or coercion strive to live by reason smile because you're alive and remember happiness is the ultimate act of defiance so i'll hope i hope that you will join me in choosing freedom and choosing happiness and if this little video this series of ideas has empowered you in any way to be happier. I hope you'll find a way to share these ideas with others. And that's got to be our show. Holy crap, gentlemen. Thank you so much for bearing with me. CJ and uh, and Jim. Comment, Jim Freedom. coming to yo, us. Yo. That was a lot. great
1: rant, man. Mm-hmm. You just went on a rant, but I think it's something that a lot of people needed to hear, and I think a lot of people got a lot of good. A lot of good came out of that. So don't worry about right. the over
0: Excellent. Thank you. you we do
1: tough. have three chats waiting, though, just so you know.
0: All right, let's do them. By the way, my screen is frozen, so you pull them up and read them for me here, Jim. I'm not going to touch stream art. Yeah, let's check in okay. with the comments, check in with CJ, and put a bow on this one and call it a day. Man, that was, holy crap, that was like 40 minutes plus talking yeah, about happiness. Good. But feels good. Feels good.
1: Happiness is great. Yeah, it was a good one. I really enjoyed it. Uh, so let, moving on, we got to keep it going. Glenn Harowitz for ten dollars. Jeff Dice, is that how you pronounce his name? I, I don't want to mm-hmm. mispronounce it. Okay, Jeff Dice, be like you and Bob Murphy five years ago. You remember Bob huh. Murphy five years ago?
0: Well, five years ago he was helping me write the book Freedom. Um, well, he had a
1: comment before this. Uh, it said, "You and Jeff Dice, that's the coolest thing since you and Bob Murphy took the stage." At the five spot in Nashville five years ago. Uh,
0: yes, no, I remember that it was a really awesome event. It was great to, always great to share a stage with Bob Merck. I've interviewed him a couple of times. Uh, I don't think I've ever interviewed Jeff. I've shared some of his work before. This isn't the first article or, or video of his that, that, that I've shared with my audience. So yeah, having him on next, you know, we should get hey uh, CJ, write it down. Let's get Marcus. By the way, I should have I should have mentioned this yesterday. We've got a great guest booker on the team now with Marcus Pulis of Indiana, and if you are in our uh, patron-only Producers Club Telegram chat, you'll see his introduction from a couple days ago, and you can talk to him and develop guest ideas with him, but yeah, getting Bob Murphy back on, and uh, certainly Jeff, I think with Jeff it's, it's funny because we so powerfully agree he had this really important disagreement
1: on the analysis of Chats, I think that will make for a great conversation. I would, I would. Okay, so Draco Chainmail. Uh, blacks are concentrated in urban areas. It's not a racial thing. It's urbanization.
0: Yeah, no, thank you. That's a really great point, Draco, to point out that it, it is a, it, and, and is it a legacy of slavery that they are in more urban areas, or does being in urban areas make them more prone to victimization by the state that you would describe as urbanization, all the, all the problems with that? It's, it's a lot of those things. And, and thank you, Draco, because I really haven't uh, given that uh, point sufficient weight in, in, in making my case and just pointing out that, you know, like, and, and, I, and it's really reinforcing my point that I, I think this is still my pinned tweet on, on Twitter right now, is that I'm leading the most important freedom march ever right now out of the cities and into the woods where there's plenty of freedom to go around. Yes, counter-urbanization by your own lifestyle.
1: We are so happy out there. Okay, the last one came from me. I put 4.99 in there just because I wanted to give a shout-out to my buddy. My friend and YouTube cob watcher Tempe against police violence set up his own autonomous zone by himself with no violence.
0: Beautiful, beautiful. And it doesn't have to be violent or confrontational or have any of the problems that we see associated with the Chaz. But, yeah, no, and that's beautiful You know, it's a funny symbolic gesture there, right? Right. But I love it, like, why, like, that's, it's always been that way, you know, like, even the American Revolution, at one point, I think, you know, had had more of an element of still be a part of, nah, screw this, we're, we're going west, you know, <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, yeah. no, no, screw you to the king, we're out of here, you know, and, and, you know, eventually it came to the violence, but, you know, even then, you got to question the American Adam, you're going to question the American Revolution? Yeah, well, you know, same way I would question the American Civil War, right? You look at how America ended slavery. I think most of us are at least familiar, you know, with with the, uh, the basic outline of that story of American slavery and the Civil War. But then you look around the world and you go, this is the only country that needed a war to end slavery. Every other one did it peacefully. And Abraham Lincoln could have bought and freed all the slaves for less than the war cost. He didn't care about it, and Lincoln was a terrible racist. So many disgusting quotes from him. But then you go, well, we had a revolution, declared independence. Why did we need the Revolutionary War? Was it Washington? Was there something about the power structure that led to not the Articles of Confederation, but the Constitution that is illegal that we're living under today, which authorized slavery, central banks, intellectual property, taxation, standing armies? I mean, the Constitution is an anti-freedom document. Let's be clear about that. So thank you. As always, to the audience for those insights and making sure that my worldview is complete. Absolutely,
1: CJ, you want to help him wrap it up? Well, yeah, decided to
2: take the the mask off here today for this one. Oh, uh, so uh, keep it
1: on until you
0: grow your beard back. <laughs> oh, terrible,
2: <laughs> terrible.
0: <laughs> terrible.
2: All right, well, as everybody knows, again, you can reach me, producer at the Freedom Line, and I'm the guy that plays DJ CJ in the morning with all the top 100 hits in the morning for our Patreons that are just getting their workday started. You can drop in there, get a private chat, see when Jim pops on, when Adam pops on. Check us out there. Um, And I had it ready to go here. There it is. Uh, Make sure just one more time to get in the Patreon members uh, here for our good, better, best. And if you are Some of the bestest people go ahead and reach out to Jim as he's going to handle that, uh, as he's the Patreon guy, go-to guy. So uh, other than that, sir, uh, you know, I really wish your stream would have been a little less choppy today for your freedom uh, or for your happiness uh, thing, but we'll go through it and see what we got, and uh, we'll get there one day at a time, sir.
0: All right. Well, with that, peace and love, y'all. Choose happiness. Be excellent to each other. (laughs) What the fuck